Hey, y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Right Way Podcast. Well, after being on the mic, just the two of us, Rhea and I are back this week with a fresh episode and another fascinating and engaging interview. And dare I say, once again, uplifting and inspirational, uh, this time with New York Times and USA Today bestselling novelist, Jocelyn Jackson. Now, what blew us away about Jocelyn was not her multi-hyphenate status. She's a former actor, and uh, she serves on the board of a nonprofit, and she is also a very successful audiobook narrator of both her own novels and other writers' work, in addition to being the prolific author of 10 novels that have been translated into a dozen languages. And it's not necessarily the fact that she's lauded for all of this. Um, she has uh, three times been the number one book sense pick. She's twice won Georgia Author of the Year. She's three times shortlisted for the Townsend Prize for fiction. She was a finalist for the Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction. Um, her audiobook narration is also highly uh, awarded. Uh, Audi Awards. Um, she was included on the Audiophile Magazine's Best of the Year list. She's won three earphone awards. She made the 2012 Audible All-Star list for highest listener ranks and reviews. Three Listen Up Awards from Publishers Weekly. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and again, and it's not that she has time to give back somehow. She serves on the Board of Reforming Arts, a nonprofit that runs education in prison and reentry programs. Jocelyn has taught creative writing, composition, and lit inside maximum security facilities for women in her home state of Georgia. It's her approach to all of it. Um, she is one of the most fascinating, fun, unpredictable, unique, and unconventional uh, interviews we've ever had. She's a total blast. She still approaches creation with a wonder and a delight um, that honestly, sometimes in writing and publishing, we are quick to lose, uh, avoid and give up on. Um, we had just, she's so funny. We had such a blast talking to her. You're going to have such a blast listening to her. So I encourage you to sit back, put on your headphones, turn the volume up and enjoy gloriously, rapturously, um, this conversation with, the irrepressible and incomparable Jocelyn Jackson. Hey guys, welcome to Right Way, a podcast where we give you insight to make informed decisions about your writing career. I'm your host, Rhea Fry, multi-published author and CEO and founder of Right Way. And I'm Joe Tower, writer, media producer, and Right Way's executive editor. On this podcast, Rhea and I will take an inside look at the publishing industry with honest and straightforward shop talk. So when you do get published, you'll know exactly what to do the right way. So Jocelyn, um, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Uh, second of all, I have to ask why you are so good at everything. Seriously. How? <laughs> you, How do you do it? You read your own <laughs> audiobooks. You've won awards for your performances. You've won author of the year awards. You're a multi best-selling author, former actor. You serve on the board of an incredible nonprofit that we'll talk about in a bit, but all of that is to say you obviously didn't start out with all of those accolades. So can you kind of rewind a bit and talk to us a, a bit about where your writing journey began? Sure. Um, I, I think that 
there are generalists and specialists. Um, my mm. husband is one of those people who can anything that needs to be done, he can figure out how to do it and get it done. And I am one of those people who I can do like three things really well. And then I have a hard time like processing oxygen into contact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, and I think that, I think it's better to be the way that he is, but I'm not that way. I'm this way. Um, so what I've always been interested in is characters and theater and acting and writing. Like that's kind of where I live. And I started out in theater, actually. I started out wanting to be a playwright. Mm. And um, believe it or not, you can make more money to buy beer with as an actor <laughs> than a playwright. So <laughs> <laughs> I did playwright, I did acting, uh, did some voice acting and stuff like that. And like uh, stage acting, regional repertory theater, um, worked with a traveling dinner theater like that went to military bases where I played a girl in a low cut dress who was like, oops, and, you know, like that. <laughs> um, just lowbrow comedy kind of fun stuff. Um, and I did all that and, uh, and eventually transitioned to novels because I learned that I'm better at acting and novel writing than I am playwriting. Mm. Like acting within, being an actor within your own novels? Um, no, I'm, I mean, to me, it's weird. Like playwriting feels like it comes out of the front of my brain and it's very thinky and my plays mm. are funny, but kind of empty. And they're not really, they're very machinated and they feel very cerebral and like this thing I did. Whereas acting and novel writing both come from like my reptile stem brain. It mm. feels really organic. Mm -hmm. It's not a process I fully understand, but if I let go and lean into it, it really opens up for me. So I ended up being a novelist who works occasionally as an actor to read audiobooks. It's amazing. That's incredible. And so, let, I mean, let's talk about your, you've written 10 novels, yeah. correct? Yeah, I've um, written 12, amazing. You know? 12, you've written, I, so you, I mean, of, of course, and we, we ask, you know, published authors this all the time, you've probably seen a lot of changes in the publishing industry happen. Oh, yeah. What is different for you with like, with launching the 10th novel or the 12th novel as compared to like the first, the 10th so, novel is compared with the first? Oh, it's, it's hugely different. So it, it, this is my, so and I think since we're talking about writing and we're talking about the publishing industry, I think it is important to say like, this is my 10th published novel, but I wrote 12. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of idea that your first novel is your first novel. That's not my first novel. That's my first novel I had published. And it took me years to break into the industry. And I wrote many, many full-length plays and many, many short stories and a novella, a terrible novella and two novels before I wrote a novel that sold. Um, so that's what I mean by 10 and 12. And mm -hmm. then the, what was the question? <laughs> so so how, how have things changed uh, in the publishing industry and what feels personally different for you with the publication of your, of your, your 10th published novel as opposed to your first with the launch? Well, a thing that I think that, that's changed that's not good for writers is mm -hmm. the, the, when I started, it was, we said big 13. Now what do we say? Yeah. Big five. Big five. 
Yeah. Big four, right? Didn't, Big four. Oh, um, that's right. They just grew Yeah. I know. It's it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It's crazy. Yeah. It's not, it's not great. It's not great because there's less and less. Now, even though the imprints are sort of like you can of course submit to multiple imprints at a publishing house. Sure. It's it's not the same. Like nobody if two imprints at random house are interested in your book they're not going to get into an auction with each other no (laughs) No, they're not (laughs) so that's not great and i think it's easier to get lost and it's also really hard for authors who don't live in new york and aren't in the publishing industry to understand and this is one reason i think you need an agent to understand what different imprints mean like Mm -hmm. There's some imprints that are kind of flagship imprints that the sales team is going to pay more attention to. And then there's some imprints that are not. And how would you know that? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, I think you're so right about getting lost today. You know, we say all the time, 80% of people want to write a book, but so many people don't really ever go after it. And when they do and say they do land a deal, it's, it's very easy to not be relevant and to kind of get lost in the shuffle. I, I joke all the time that I'm a very kind of mid-list author. I'm with Macmillan. I'm with one of, you know, the big for now, but I feel like I, I do kind of get lost in the shuffle. Um, and it, it can be really hard, I think in this industry to, to stay relevant or to, to stay top of mind for your readers, you know, on social media in the world at large. So with this launch in particular with mother, may I, are you doing, in-person events? I mean, I know, you know, things are still kind of crazy with No, with COVID, I'm not. But. Nobody from, no, no one, I don't think anyone at HarperCollins, but for sure nobody with Moro is doing in-person events that are through their publisher. Like, yep. we're just not ready to do that yet because yep. um, I, I don't think that anybody wants their book associated with a super spreader event. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Like you just don't want to be the cause of people being sick and dying just because they like your books. Like it's not, I love books. I don't love books that much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, completely. So it's all been, you know, Zoom and I I didn't even do the, the tour thing. Like we did one huge ticketed event, Karen Slaughter, who is an amazing. Yes, I love Karen. Yeah. She interviewed, we did, we were in conversation. And if you've ever been in an in conversation with Karen Slaughter, like I've done a ton of interviews and stuff, but that conversation that the people who bought tickets were there for, that will never be repeated. She asked, uh, nobody asks. (laughs) I know her, she lives near me. And so I'm very comfortable with her. I really like her. And so we just talked really frankly because it wasn't being recorded. Like it was a really good event. So it felt like an in-person event. And that's the only event I've had that did because at an in-person event where you're not being recorded, especially if you're in conversation with an author you really like and trust, you you say things you might not say on a sure. Zoom that could end up on, you know, you're more- Sure. I talked about, you know, things that are true in my past, in my life that I don't necessarily 
take out billboards about or whatever like that are more personal to the book so it was really kind of a special thing but that's what tours are for right like if I go to a bookstore and they're not recording sometimes even if they are recording if somebody asks a question I want to ask because we're in an intimate setting I'll say please Mm -hmm. stop recording and I'll answer that and then yeah oh yeah well, and that's, yeah, that's the beauty. And it's great that you were, that that was, you could still kind of, that could still be captured, that kind of uh, immediacy and saying things that might never be said if it were being recorded. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really rare right now. Like most yeah. of my mm-hmm. events, I'm very aware that I am on the internet. I'm on sure. the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it on the internet? The internet is forever. <laughs> oh God, it is you true. Know, that's, that's so funny. I, I mean, I don't really think about that as much when I'm doing all these like virtual events, but that, that is very, very true. That's something to think about. Well, and even when you're not like, I just, I do feel like it, it is, I, I, I can't imagine what it must be like, you know, for in like in the public eye like that for, for you to be at these events and everybody's got a video camera in their pocket, you yep. know? So it yeah. is, it is something you have to be very, very cautious of. I, I have to ask about the audiobook stuff because I'm so fascinated. I mean, I, I know that audiobooks in general, the, the, the process of recording an audiobook in, in and of itself isn't easy, but you, you do your own audiobooks. So <laughs> how does that, how did that happen? When did that come about? And like, when did you, when were you like, oh, I mean, I'm the one that should be doing this. And uh, like, how did that happen? Okay, so here's how it happened. <laughs> um, my first novel, as you know, was my first published novel, as you know, was not my first novel I wrote. It was my third. Well, everybody thinks your first novel is autobiographical. And my first right. novel was autobiographical and it's in a box under my bed and you will never <laughs> um, My third novel, I knew when it was going to be published, everybody was going to think it was autobiographical and the narrator is a wildly promiscuous murderess. So um, I thought, I don't really want to read that audiobook. I don't want, it, you know, Gods in Alabama. I, I don't want to be any more associated with Gods in Alabama than is already going to happen just because it's a debut, because this is not my life. I made right. this up. Right. So nothing happened with that. Well, then my second book, I thought, well, nobody's going to associate me with that. So I called my editor and I said, Karen Carmetz, Rudy at Warner Books, my first publishing house was before it was now a shut. And I said, "Um, Karen, I want to read the audio. And she said, oh, that is adorable. (laughs) No, 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 no. And I said, well, I've worked as a voice actor and I would really, I'd really like to do it. And she's like, okay, um, why don't you send in an audition and I'll give it to them, but they're not, they don't, you won't know. So I I sent in an audition and then they called me and they were like, oh yes, you can do this. So wait a minute. So in addition to doing your own audiobooks, you also auditioned and got the part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they wanted somebody who could, like, this was Warner. Like, there's different mm-hmm. styles of audiobooks, and Warner does, or did when it was Warner, did very, very theatrical ones where you you did a lot of voices and uh, sure, sure. they put music behind it and stuff. So they wanted an actor who had a big rubber face and no fear. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of that way, but like, I'm not subtle. So, um, 
I mean, I can be subtle, but it's not my go-to move. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so I got the job, but, and then like, after that, my next contract that came, it was in, I'd signed another book with a book deal with Warner and it was in the contract that I would, that I had to read the audiobook um, because the, the Between George audiobook did great. Like, like it got picked up by Cracker Barrel and was going in trucks. Wow. So that was good. And since then, um, then a, a friend of mine, her novel that I love more than any novel I've ever heard of on the planet. I think Macmillan got it. What is it? Which one? Uh, Shine, Shine, Shine by Lydia Netzer. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's a really good book. And it's um, it was with a publishing house I had never worked with. And I went to war. Like, I was like, <sighs> I want to read this. So I auditioned for them. I call, I mean, I made phone calls. I was like, I want to read it. I'll do a promo. Please. And so they let me audition. And we actually won Publishers Weekly Audiobook of the Year with that one. So oh, my God. Yeah. And since then, I have read for like Patty Callahan Henry. I just put uh, I just did a part on the new Jen Phillips, who wrote Fierce Kingdom. I just did a, one of the parts in her multi-voiced audiobook. So I've read for um, Mary Beth Whalen, Mary Beth Mayhew Whalen. Um, I did a debut last year. Like I, I, I do just enough audiobooks every year to qualify for a SAG card, which makes my actor's heart sing. Oh my god! I <laughs> love that. Well, yeah. what's the process of that like for you, being a writer? I mean, yes, you're also an actor, but you know that's hours and hours and hours and hours of performing and do you, it's is really that- a lot faster than you would think. So, really? if it, oh yeah, I, I can do an audiobook in three or four days. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I do, um, I, my own books, I do absolutely no prep work because I've been writing it for a year and a half and I know exactly what everybody sounds like in my head. I know it backwards and forwards. Why would I need to, you know, like the amount of preparation I put into writing the book has sort of covered that for me. I know where the finance are. For somebody else's audiobook, it is a lot more work actually because I have to read it a couple of times and find the beats. And my husband, um, he and I actually met doing regional repertory theater together. The first time I ever saw him, he was learning on he was learning sword fighting on stage. Like, how do you not marry that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta marry the sword fighter. That's like That's a rule. Right. Like, oh, look at that with a sword. Yes, I'll take one of those, please. Thank you. Um so he's a old theater hand and he helps me like he'll we'll go over the voices and stuff and I'll I'll have something set before I go in and then you have a director who has who also knows the script really well and who helps you find the beats. So that takes more prep work but really it's you know it's about I lose a week to an audiobook between mm-hmm. reading, mm-hmm. thinking, working on it and recording. Do you think, you know, a lot of people want to be, you know, voiceover actors or, or audition for gigs like this? What would your advice be if, if someone's kind of starting out, can they just go audition or yeah, what are the steps real, that? It's, called, it's called a reel. Like yep. you, you, you do, um, you make a, and you can do it. Like if there's an audio, if you, you need to either have a home studio, which I can't tell you how to do that. I record yeah. it. <laughs> Listen up audiobooks here in Atlanta. I'm sure you would, I mean, where do you record? Yeah. I, well, I have just, I'm in my husband's office right now, but I have a little studio as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's quiet. Like I know a lot of most, if I did more audiobook work, like if I was yeah. going to be serious about it, the way to do it is to create a home studio with sound blocking. And then you just 
Skype in your director and you're done. So but I, I don't, I don't have the, I live in a, we're not house people. I mean, yeah. we just downsized to a condo. Our kids are gone. So we were like, peace. We're out Bye. of here. <laughs> it's what I dream of. I ain't going to mow another lawn. No way. Never, never. Yeah. We moved into a town home, like a mile okay. away from our old house and we just, it's great. So we're not, I don't really have the room to do it anymore, but when we lived at the house, I often thought of, I had this sort of big closety space in the upstairs and I thought I could soundproof that and but I don't do it enough to justify the expense and the space in this house. So I, I read it listen up audiobooks here in Atlanta and listen up audiobooks in Atlanta you can take a reel there like and say I want to be put in your bank of people that and they'll look at what you're they'll put you know like female they'll do an age range they'll put you in categories of this is a person you can do these kinds of accents blah 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 that's awesome amazing you know you've got such a diverse background uh you know not only as an artist and a creator but you have like kind of an interesting like diversity like with your your books and your and the awards and accolades they've won as well i feel like a lot of authors get kind of like a little bit of a narrow focus when they write they want to hit a list or whatever but you've, you've won all kinds of awards for your work. Were these like active competitions you or your team entered? Or do you think there's a, an entirely different avenue of recognition outside of the traditional proverbial lists that authors and upcoming authors should be tapping into? I don't really know how it, it works. Sometimes people call and tell me I've won an award and then I feel really happy. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. That there, seems right. That seems right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yay, an award. Um, I, I don't think you have a lot of, there's some that your publisher enters you into. And I think, and there's some that you can enter yourself, I, I think, but it's not a thing that I've necessarily like actively pursued because I'm pretty, like, that's more that's more of a literary avenue. And I'm a, I write, I'm pretty commercial, you know, yeah. I write hybrid mm-hmm. fiction. Like my goal when I sit down to write a book is I want a book that you can pour yourself the biggest freaking margarita, yes. and the beach, read it, have a great time. Or if you want more than that, it's there for you. It's going to be great for your book club. You'll be able to have a discussion. There's, you know, there's stuff going on thematically, but it's not, I'm not trying to like win a Pulitzer here. I'm trying to have have fun and spawn conversations about social justice issues and women's issues that are really relevant to me. And I'm trying to think my way through these really practical matters of how our life is right now. I write contemporary, I write right now. And I wanna think about what the national conversation is and what I think about these things that are going on in our country and my world and, and, uh, and address those via story. Hmm. Absolutely. And being, you know, your, your 10th published novel, and I'm super curious how you define success for yourself now. I feel like a lot of authors actually don't define success from the start and they borrow these successful, you know, terms are like, yes, hitting a list, then I'll be successful or, you know, getting picked up by a book club, then I'll be successful. And it's often such a fleeting moment on this longer journey. So I'm, I'm curious with how seasoned you actually are, how you define success for yourself now. 
Well, I've, there's two different, there's two entirely different ways that I look at it. I look at it in terms of a person who works in the publishing industry and a writer. Mm-hmm. And I define those successes very, very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, as a writer, which I don't know if I'll always work in publishing, but I'll always be a writer. I was writing long before I was publishing. I will be writing until I die and they pry my laptop from my cold, dead hands. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And as a writer, I guess I define my success as like, did I say the thing I was trying to say to the best of my ability in this moment? Yeah. And also like as a writer who likes to be read did my story is it just you know for me or like that to me is not a success like I want I write to be read I write I, I try to get enough onto the page that it's a map. Like you're never going to get, like if you could read the book in my head, oh my God, you would die. It's so beautiful and perfect. <laughs> the brain to the page is a really long journey. And then like, it also has to make another journey from the page into another brain that's had an yeah. entirely different set of lived experiences. Yeah. So my job is to make a map it won't take a reader to the place in my brain, but I want to make a map that'll take them to a place in their brain where they can think about the same things that I was thinking about when I wrote. And they'll read a very different story from the story I wrote, but they're still going to be engaging with the stuff that engaged me. Mm-hmm. And that to me is 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 success as an as an artist. I mean, I am I'm I write commercially and I think that gets people get really hinky about daring to call that art as if something Mm -hmm. is popular, it can't be art. But I I kind of poo-poo that crap. Like I'm a really, I'm a really eclectic reader. Like Mm -hmm. I've read a Bridgerton novel or two and Mm -hmm. I liked it. There was intrigue and I like humping and intrigue. And then I've re- I'm in a classics book club, so I'm reading a great work of literature every six weeks. So yeah. like deathless crap. Like I I read the whole gamut, and I think it's all it's all valuable. It all has its place. And and I think what I am doing is I'm working in the arts. So I'm not I, I don't mince about that. And I, I think that's hard, especially for women to claim. But I'm working in the arts, and my that's how I judge my success as an artist in the publishing industry. Like there's so many things that I can't control. Like I can't control the sales arc. I can't control the ad campaign. I can't control anything. So I, I've learned over, like I've been doing this, I've been making a living as a writer for 15 years. And the way I have, like, I don't want to define success as I can pay my mortgage because I may not always be able to do that. I may have to get a day job. I mean, you just don't know in this industry. Mm-hmm. I define success by did I do everything I possibly could to help get this book into the hands of readers yes. and to support my publishing house's efforts and to, with my agent, push for them to do more and do everything I can from my end to make the book a success. And if I did that, then you just have to let it go. 
Yes, mm -hmm. completely. So is that, do you think that's also where you derive the most pleasure at this stage in your career? Uh, what, from what? Like from that, from that process, is that like, you know, you're, 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 you're it's kind of like an unconventional, I mean, not unconventional, but it's a very interesting definition of what success is. And, you know, as, as after well, it's 10, not about pleasure. No, it's not. I don't know. It's about mental health. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. If, if I define my success based on things I have no control over, will I win this award? I didn't know I was up for it. Will I, will I hit this list? I have no control over that. Will my sales on this novel beat my sales on the last novel? I have no control over that. So like, why would I hand my frail, my frail mental health over to an industry that yeah. I, I can't do anything about it. it? The only thing I can do is what I can. So that's like a rigorously controlled thing. Yeah. And I think that authors who don't learn to survive that or navigate that, not necessarily in the way I've chosen to navigate it, but learn to navigate that loss of control and that inability to push your career the way you might want it to go. Like it's, you, it, you go into it, the book goes out in the world and what happens happens and there's nothing you can do. And I've had some highs, I've had some lows, like I've had some really, I've had some really bad launches where mm -hmm. a book like Between Georgia, my second novel just tanked in hardback. It just tanked. Nobody bought it. It was terrible. And then, um, and I thought, well, my career's over and I'm going to die alone in a hole. <laughs> and then they redid the cover and the paperback. The audio suddenly got all this traction. And then it went, it, it had a great life in paperback. And, and mm. I had no, it was the same exact book. <laughs> so what do you, you know, what do you do yeah. with that? Yeah. You just, it, it was a learning experience for me to go, okay, you just have to let the you know, like dandelion fluff it you finish the book that one of the best things about the publishing industry is I turn the book in and it's a year to a year and a half before it comes out and I have learned that once that book is in the pipeline when edits are done I release it and I put yes. my whole heart in the book I'm writing now oh mm -hmm. love that god I love that mm -hmm. but if you don't learn to do that you don't survive publishing like all those authors who write one book sometimes People only have one book in them. Like they want to write a book, they write it, they check the box, then they go learn to scuba dive or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but for those of us who are obsessed and it's really the only thing we can do, <laughs> we can do one thing yeah. um, and we're going to keep doing it. If you don't learn to navigate, if you don't learn to not let that crush you, it will crush you. Yes, for <laughs> a thousand percent. Correct. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah, oh, I, oh, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> What's your methodology? Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned to just, well, I'm, I'm still trying to learn it um, because I'm not, I'm not as seasoned. I have several nonfiction books out. I'm on my fourth um, suspense novel, but yeah, just letting go of the results. And like you said, doing everything I can do that's in my control. But yeah, once I turn that book in, I'm, I'm a very like, 
okay, I wrote it. I don't ever want to look at it again. I don't really ever want to think about it again. I'm very good at letting go and moving on to (laughs) a new project. So I think that's just, yeah, this kind of thing that you have to hone over time and just really learning to let go. I think that is so much about being a writer actually is learning to let that shit go. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Um, so speaking of, um, well, not speaking of letting shit go, but, um, your new book, mother, may I, I could not let that go. I almost couldn't read this book because I even sent you a message. It freaked me out so much because I used to have this reoccurring nightmare where I would see a witch in my window and your book (laughs) out like that. I was like, can't read this. Can't read it. Um, but can you tell us a bit about that book and where you got the inspiration for this story? Cause seriously, like the first couple of lines are just killer. They're so good. Oh, thanks. Um, that's kind of a thing for me is that I can't like, I have this, I'd probably be better off as a writer if I let it go. I have this belief (laughs) that the end has to be present in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I love that. So so that is a, that means the beginning, like, I don't know, for me, writing a novel, the first parts of it are really slow. It might take me six months to have the first three chapters. And Mm -hmm. then the next 10 chapters take, uh, you know, three months. And then the the, la- the whole last half of the book takes them. So it's like, it just uh, building that foundation over and over. So I'm glad, I'm glad that you had that experience with it. Um, I mean, like any novel, it, it came from about a thousand places. Um, I love fairy tales <laughs> and I find them like, first of all, like uh, it's important. Like, so Brie is, um, this is a book where uh, Brie's child is taken and she she very quickly learns that the person who's taken her child is also a mother. So there's this weird empathy that happens between them. It's so of course it's you know there's Stockholm syndrome going on, but mm-hmm. also like they really do understand each other. They came out of the same place socioeconomically. While Bree's been very upwardly mobile, the witch or the other mother is has been very downwardly mobile. They're each in their own way fighting for their child, which means that no matter how much they have empathy for each other, they're heading for a conflagration. And um, so in that, I wanted, like, I wanted this, her to see this person who's been stalking her to find, to get her kid. And I wanted it to be a really threatening thing. Well, the least threatening person on the whole planet is a little old lady. Yeah, (laughs) completely. Unless she's a witch. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like if you are going to have a little old lady stalking you, it's like, oh, I see a Mima. I saw her yesterday at the Mima. (laughs) And I thought, well, what, you know, and then, and this is a threat to her child and witches are like baby eaters and candy houses with yes. cousins. So, and, and like anybody who you wake up and you, you live in the city and you're well off. So you have this backyard with a big locked privacy fence. It's going to be creepy to have someone in your backyard looking in your bedroom. Oh, oh God. I, I, just oh. I was reading. I was like, nope, I literally cannot do this. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> less creepy. If, if you look in the backyard and you see someone sweet meanwhile, you think, oh no, I need to, she sure. has Alzheimer's and she's lost. So I didn't want that mood. I wanted it to be this 
instant alert to the reader that like this is bad. So which imagery is the only scary that you know Baba uh-huh. mission accomplished? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh that, my god. Yeah. <laughs> Can you could you walk us through a typical writing day for you? Um no. Okay. I don't have a typical writing day. I that's, love that. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that. oh my that's God. So I love that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are like, they're, you know, I love one of my favorite writing books that I make. Anybody that will sit down and listen to me for five minutes, read is Bird by Bird. Oh my God. I love that, that book. book. Yep. <laughs> but, but caveat, <laughs> I learned that you can't just read Bird by Bird because Nobody can tell you how to write a novel. All they can do is tell you how they write a novel. Yes. And I felt like such a failure because I was completely like, she's right. Anne Lamott is right. For a lot of people, if you sit down in the same place at the same time every day and and light the candle, you can Pavlov your brain like a dog to start drooling good sentences. Sure. My brain will not be Pavlov. That is not how it works. Mm-hmm. And if I did that, I would, I mean, I did, I did try to do it and felt like a failure for like a year and a half as I kept this routine and ended up throwing out just days and days of crap. And I have mm-hmm. learned that what, when I, when I sit down to write, if it's not coming, being in the same place and smelling the same thing, that's not going to help me. What will help me is to be bored. I need mm-hmm. to take a tr- an eight hour drive. I need to clean yep. out a closet with no podcast on like yes really get bored and once i'm bored and i might need to be bored for days yes and then when i'm bored enough i'll write and i write in huge sweeping swaths of five ten twenty thousand words and then i spend the next months of time revising that into something worth reading like and i really don't like writing like that's my least favorite part <laughs> i love revising yes uh, <laughs> if i didn't have to like the only reason to write is to get something to revise I, I love that because i'm i'm kind of the same way like i i get in that flow state when i'm writing but i love like going back and just yeah. I never get in a flow state when I'm writing. Really? Second of it. Yeah. I get in huge flows when I'm revising. I can lose hours. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's Joyfully so- lose hours. But I think that's so refreshing to hear someone as successful as you, you know, so many writers think like, if I'm not writing every single day, then I'm not a real writer. And I call bullshit on that. Like we run a company for writers. We have dozens and dozens of clients whose work often become, uh, often comes before our own writing. So I've learned to fit my writing in seasons. I'm a fast and furious writer. I too love to write like chunks. I kind of become obsessed with it and just have to get it done. But then I have periods of processing and periods where I'm stepping away from it. And I think that's okay. I think you have to figure out what works best for you and stop paying attention to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, like to some degree, yes, but I also think it's incredibly valuable to look at what literally everyone else is doing. You can (laughs) save yourself so much time by asking other people about their process, trying their methods and seeing sure. what works rather than staggering toward your own terrible process. 
blindly. Oh God. That is yeah. true. I had the sense um, going into that question that I should have been like, maybe I should ask Jocelyn if she has a typical writing day because I had the sense that maybe not you, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, typical, yeah. Which I love. Um, I love that. So I want to switch topics to the amazing nonprofit you serve for reforming arts, which runs prison education and reentry. Um, I've worked with numerous prisoners on death row and for several innocence projects as a journalist in my kind of past life and have just seen firsthand how broken that system can be. So broken. So broken. It's it's just horrific. But can you speak to this a little bit more and and if there's a way even for people to get involved, how they might do that? Absolutely. Um, I, I work with a small Georgia nonprofit named Reforming Arts and we are in partnership with GCHEP and a lot of larger nonprofits looking at prison stuff. And we are also in partnership with Georgia State University. That's so we are a degree seeking program. And to be in our program, you have to complete your um, your high school diploma, which you can do while incarcerated. Like you don't, you, you know, it's it can be um, uh, just lost my train of thought. But um, so we're but, but we're also a, a liberal arts program and we really believe in critical thinking and that art leads to empathy and self-discovery and um, life skills that uh, communication skills and ability to express yourself in ways that can help you find opportunity. Yes. Um, so we so we do two things like on the one hand we are a degree seeking program but on the other hand i also you know i've just run creative writing workshops in there because and we oh, i love that valuable and we're in partnership with the alliance theater which is a which is one of the best theaters in the in the in the city in the state in the world if you will forgive me um it really <laughs> is a, a fantastic theater and um and i i started working with it i, I guess gosh seven or eight years ago Wow. And it was this thing where I, I just, I don't want to be, I'm not a very woo woo person, but it really was kind of a woo woo thing Yeah. where I looked at my church bulletin and it said, like, if you're interested in doing prison ministry, you should come to this library. And like, I grabbed my husband's arm. I was like, I have to go to this. Like, it was this feeling like I have to go to this. So I went to it and it was a shampoo drive, which is important to have shampoo, but I'm not a logistics person. Like I can, I don't even have shampoo for my like children. So I, I can't, I can barely function. I, I mean, you're laughing, but when I tell you I can do two things, I, I can do two things. Not a joke. That was not, not, a joke. not a joke. I'm neurotypical. I have huge problems with executive function. I'm, I'm on the autism spectrum. So I am, I can't, I, I'm not capable of doing the kinds of things there. I'll mess it up. So um, I married executive function buckets of it. Yes. Um, so I thought, well, that was dumb. And I know I'm, I'm such a concrete person and I'm not woo woo. And of course that wasn't a message from the universe. How, what an idiot I am. And then this woman stood up and was like, well, I, I just, I'm always interested in partnering with anybody who's doing stuff in Georgia prisons. My name is Wendy Ballou. I run a small nonprofit called Reforming Arts and we, we bring arts education into Georgia's women's prisons. And the bolt hit me again. And I was like, oh, 
that's why I'm here. It really was a message for the universe. And I walked up to her and I said, I walked up to them and I said, um, Wendy, I, I want to work with you. And Wendy was like, uh, okay, well, and uh, you know, I know you can't see me. I know this is a podcast, but I'm just going to tell you, if you saw me, I look like I am about to rise up and organize a bake sale. (laughs) 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 So I'm not, but I look like I am. And so Wendy was like, well, okay, why don't you try it? So I was invited to come and teach a novel for three weeks at a literature class, just come in as a guest. To, you know, I, I am, I've taught in other colleges. I have a master's degree, blah, blah, blah. So I, I went in and, and Wendy was like, what novel would you, you know, choose a novel? What would you like to teach at the prison system? And I, like a big dummy, I thought, well, I want to do a novel I really know super well and that I'm comfortable with. I was like, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so To Kill a Mockingbird, I read for the first time when I was nine, and I thought it was a novel with some boring court parts, but really good parts about trying to get Boo Radley to come out and who was putting gum in a knot hole. (laughs) And I've reread it at least once a year ever since then, and it's always unfolded for me in new ways. And But I had gotten to a point where I thought, this novel will never unfold for me again. Okay, then I taught it in the prison (laughs) and unfolded. And I just fell in love with the work. I, I've been, I did it up until the pandemic. I was actively involved in, in teaching. Um, and the, the more I was there, the more I came to understand, like, I'm not a person who has had second chances, right? I'm a person who's had 153rd chances. Mm-hmm. I've had safety nets everywhere. All of my students are coming out of a all, when I say all, I mean, with maybe one exception in the seven years I was doing it, all of my students came out of grinding unimaginable poverty. The vast majority of my students came out of disordered at best and decidedly unsafe at worst family situations. So these are people who don't get second chances. Some of them don't get chances. And when they do get a chance, if they mess up at all, that's it. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's very easy for those of us who have had 150 million chances to be like, well, she had a chance and she yeah. knew it. Meanwhile, me, who was raised by people who just freaking adored me and who's been educated and all this kind of stuff, I've messed up 5,000 times worse, 100 million times, and there were always systems to catch me. So I guess what I'm interested in doing and what Reforming Arts is interested in in doing is is creating systems to create extra chances for people who didn't get one or who got one or two. Mm -hmm. And and I believe arts arts education creates critical thinking, creates opportunity. Education creates opportunity opportunity creates if you have like it's very hard to make good choices if you don't have any yeah completely mm. so i mean oh, what and I- so what you can do is reformingarts.org yes yeah. <laughs> go to reforming if you're a person who's like 
what am I going to do with all this money? I've got all this money and a money shovel. What can I do? This is what you can <laughs> shovel the money at us. And we also, if you are a person who is a, a sort of a teacher living in Georgia, like, well, of course, volunteering is always good, but you're probably not in Georgia. So, so that's the money scoop would be extremely helpful right now with the pandemic. It's very hard to get into the prison system. We also have a reentry program that we're really focusing on right now until we can get back in. Hopefully, hopefully this fall, it looks like we're all getting vaccinated and hopefully we'll be back in the prisons this fall. But, um, but we've been really, as, as we have reentering citizens coming out of the prison system, we're helping with educational opportunity, employment opportunity, finding houses, trauma processing. It's very traumatic to come out of prison into the world, especially with the mm -hmm. way technology is moved mm -hmm. forward. Just, yeah. and, and like a lot of these people who are coming out of being incarcerated have never had a bank account. Like never. They weren't raised in a family where you had that. They're dependent on like those usurious check cashing places or yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just very bad. So just like basic stuff, like how do I open a checking account? How do I make an investment? How do I like that? I mean, what incredible like personal revelations too that you sort of spoke about. Are there, are there ways that your nonprofit work over the last uh, several years have, have informed your your work or your books? Or oh, the way you write. absolutely. Like, I mean, at the heart of Mother May, like, I, like, this is a thriller, right? It's a kidnapping book. There's the jet, the stakes are very high. But it's also at the, like, I, at the same time, I really do, like, oh, I just got the best review in the Wall Street Journal. What did they say? They said, this is the thinking and feeling person's thriller, a literary beach read. Oh, okay, that, that's, that's my awesome. hashtag goals. That's what I said, yeah. right? <laughs> so thank you, Wall Street Journal. Like, it, I feel so seen. But the the part that is the, the, the thinking and feeling person's part is like, Brie, the narrator, grew up at that that rung of the middle class that is just like clinging with their nails. Do you know what I mean? Like her, she always, she was not food insecure and she had a roof over her head, but like if the car broke down, like when I was growing up, I grew up blue collar South and was very upwardly mobile. And like, I remember being a kid and my mom losing a $5 bill at the grocery store and just sitting down and crying. Like, like that was a, that was a month changing event. Like all her, it was, that was bad. And my father um, had been army, but he, he contracted a rare blood cancer and had to retire. And my mom was like a church secretary. And so we had my dad's truncated military retirement and her secretary money. So we were, it was, I mean, we were, we had a place to live. We loved each other. We were safe, but it was not the way there, you know, my father recovered. He wasn't supposed to, but he had been an airborne ranger. So when death came, he was like, I decline and just decided to live anyway. He lived up into his, well into his seventies and he had a great second career and was very upwardly mobile. So by the time I went to college, they could afford to send me to college. And Brie has had the kind of same experience. She gets a scholarship. She marries very advantageously old Southern money. And the other mother, the one who's taken her child, her family has had 
the exact opposite trajectory where they never got one of those breaks and things went wrong and there were no safety nets. And so what she's doing with this genuinely horrific act is trying to reset the world in a way that's fair. And just as Brie comes to feel empathy for this person, the thing she's doing is so horrifying. She's a terrible human being making really bad life choices, <laughs> not defending her, but you can see how she got there and you can Absolutely. see how if the world had been a different place, she wouldn't have done. I mean, it wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. Oh, so crazy. So lastly, before we do our fun little lightning round that we do at the end of every <laughs> podcast episode, I would love to ask if you were just starting out today, because so many of our clients who come to us are writers who really want to get published and they haven't been published yet. What advice would you give writers who want to become published in this day and age with the publishing industry, the way that it is? What are your, what's your two cents? <laughs> um, I, you know, the thing that I, so, I mean, mm, publishing advice, I mean, writing advice is easier, right? Sure. Right. Be, right. You need to be reading. You can't join a conversation if you're not in it. And reading is the listening part. Like literature is a conversation. So if you're not reading a lot and reading what's happening now, you're going to miss the movement of the conversation and what you're writing is not going to be relevant. That's going to make mm -hmm. it harder to get published. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my writing advice. My, my publishing advice is I see so many writers with good books who are talented. They query 10 agents and they get 10 no's and then they start writing the next book. Like mm -hmm. they've written something completely publishable and, and sellable, but they're just so easily discouraged. Yes. Um, to get my first agent, I sent out 160 something queries. Wow. And got one. That's all yes. you need. That's all you need. One yes. One yes. One yes. That's it. Um, and then I wrote two novels that we shopped that were not bought. They they were they did not get sold. And I just wrote another novel. So the the way to get published is to write excellently and refuse to hear the word no. Yes. And when you're querying, you query 10 at a time. And if you don't get requests for at least two partials out of 10 queries, your query is not good enough. Make your query. 100%. That's what we preach all the time. We actually pitch five agents at a time for people mm -hmm. <laughs> to get, you know, real feedback. Cause yeah, I see people querying 50, 50 agents at a time, 60 agents at a time. And sometimes it is as simple as refining your pitch. And um, if that is what I did. Like, I think that I really believe that's why I got one. Yes. And I was lucky because nobody told me that I sent out all 160 same day, which let me tell you, when those no's started coming in, in this huge deluge. Of, oh God. Oh, it was just terrible. I, it was, it was the, it was a, a thing I was co-writing was the very first thing I queried for. And it got to a point where I would just take, and this was back in, you know, when dinosaurs walked the earth and it was all paper. <laughs> 
So I would go out to the mailbox every day. There was weeks when I would go out to the mailbox every day and there would be some of my Saisies in the mailbox. Oh my God. So I started just saving them up. I just started throwing them in a pile. And then on Saturday, my co-writer and I would get together and open them together. And as we would open them, we would read them to each other. And there would be form letters or sometimes it would be your own query with just the word no. (laughs) So we would pull these out. And as we would get them, we would talk about the agent who had rejected us and intimate that their parents had not been married at the moment of their conception. We would just say terrible things about them to make ourselves feel better while drinking like country club pours. Yes. And oh we were God. saying horrible things about this one agent. And I was like, wait, 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 this is a yes. Oh my <laughs> we God. We were so sure it would be a no. We would just look at, you know, but, um, and that, then that was my agent. That is amazing. One yes, people. One yes. That's all it takes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So to end every podcast episode, we're just going to do a fun little lightning round. You say the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. Ready. All right, cool. Um, this one's going to be a hard one for you probably, but uh, best moment as a published author. Um, when the, when the book comes and it's real and you can smell it and touch it. Mm. Biggest, that. biggest lesson that you've learned on your paths to publication. Be nice. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that answer before. I love that. Uh, favorite thing to do when you're not working. Scuba dive. Oh, <laughs> one thing that you wish all writers knew. Um, not to be competitive with other writers. You're not mm-hmm. going after the same slot. There's either your slot or someone else's. Oh, love it. If you weren't a writer, you'd be really sad. An actor, <laughs> An actor um, or a teacher. I, I actually really, I really like teaching. We talked about this a little bit already, but what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I want my legacy to be, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I believe in that. I, mm. I just want to be kind while I'm here. Love mm. it. Love it. Love that. Wine or beer? Yeah. Yes, that's the right answer. That is the right answer. Uh, We're about to go for burgers, so today, beer. Yeah, there we go. Today it's beer, yeah. Uh, Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Best book you've read in 2021 so far? Oh, um, Liberty by Caitlin Mm. Greenidge. Ooh, okay. Liberty with an IE. Got it. What kinds of writing would you like to see more of in the world? Um, women who act instead of reacting and who are the center instead of lighting up the center. Ooh, love that. And who is one author you think everyone should know about and read? Lydia Netzer. Oh, say that again. Lydia Netzer. Ooh, okay, great. I feel like we have a new lightning round champion. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> oh God. That, was, that was awesome. Here, lightning round. Oh my God. Um, Jocelyn, thank you so much. We will include it, of course, in the show notes as the link, but where can people find out more about you and your books? Um, so my mother spelled my name Jocelyn really weirdly. It looks yeah. like 
God love her, Jocelyn Jackson, which turned out to be great because it means that I got the domain name for everything. So it's just jocelynjackson.com. I'm Jocelyn Jackson on Twitter. I'm Jocelyn Jackson on Instagram, Jocelyn Jackson on Facebook. So it's just my name, J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N, Jackson spelled like a normal person. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Everyone go out and buy Mother May I. You will be freaked out, but not <laughs> It is such a great, great read. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me. This is really fun. Hey, thanks again for listening to The Right Way Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and comment and help us continue to deliver the content you want and need. And for more information about RightWay, visit rightwayco.com to get more info on all our editorial and developmental services and sign up for our weekly newsletter where we'll be sharing exclusive content, access to digital courses, and offering proprietary resources for aspiring and established writers. 